Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that we can be in your house, uh, that we can sing to you, that we can study your word. Father, that we can fellowship and grow closer as a body, gathered here locally for your purpose and for your use. Lord, we pray that as we open your word, that your spirit would speak and that we would hear. Lord, we pray that and, and know confidently based on your promises that your spirit will be present where we're gathered. And, and so our prayer is, is not that he would be present because we know he will, but it's that we would hear him, um, that we would be affected by him, uh, that we would be directed by him. Lord, that, that our awareness would increase and that we would be given discernment in addition to wisdom, that we would be able to tell right from wrong, and Lord, that we would be able to go in the right and have that courage and understanding to be able to move in that direction. And so, Father, we pray that we would draw close to you. Um, as we've gathered, Lord, draw us close to you now as we open your word, as we read from it, as we study together. Please guide us and use us for your purpose. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's nice to be here this morning. Um, it's been a little while since we visited. Um, I see some familiar faces, and it's always nice to see. Um, and for, uh, for those of you that don't know me, um, I'm a minister and an elder in our church in Beverly Hills. Um, and you'll, you're going to get a little bit of insight into the scariness of my mind, perhaps, this morning. Um, because you're going to get a chance to see if, of how I'm trying to, to um, understand situations, look at what the Word says about them, and, uh, and um, good Lord willing, uh, have some direction for all of us from this. Um, I had two situations that, that came to mind recently that I've been considering and thinking about how they come together and what the Lord um, has in store kind of for me that I'm going to share with you through them. So one situation is actually a, a number of songs that I've heard, Christian songs, that really reflect on, um, on coming to God broken and that being okay. Um, and it, I'm not going to quote them. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to read the lyrics of them. But this idea that it's okay for us to come to God, not just as we are, right? We sing that song, it's an old hymn, um, but also coming to God um, in the state that we are, and if our state is broken, that it's okay to be like that before God. So depending on your, your own state, that might make perfect sense, and you might be totally thumbs up with that, or you might be questioning me on what do I mean by that. And, and that's actually the, the very issue that I was having as I was considering these songs and considering my state and our state um, and how we approach God. Because on one level, I, I feel and I know based on scripture, and I'm going to share these scriptures here with you in a second, that we have to come to God as we are. And that we actually have to be broken to be able to come to God. Um, recognizing who we are before him requires us to be broken. Um, 
But there was something that the, that the Spirit was really kind of tugging at me through, through these, just thinking about these lyrics and, and thinking about what I was hearing in the context and the tone of them. And then the other one was um, a, a situation where I, I, I got to spend some time with somebody that I grew up with. Um, and I haven't really spent a ton of time with this individual um, over the years since we grew up. I you know, see them somewhat regularly, but really haven't spent a ton of time together with them. And so recently got to spend a lot of time with them. Um, a believer, uh, like I said, we grew up together. Um, he and his family go to church. I think they're involved in their church. Uh, what struck me was his language. Um, and I shared this with my family. It really actually bothered me. Didn't know I was going to break up over this. <laughs> um, but the fact that, that somebody who I grew up with, who didn't have that language as a young believer, now many years later, I almost sense this person regressing. Right? And using language that, that is like on the edge of being appropriate. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, it's not like he's out cussing and swearing and, and saying every, you know, this bomb and that bomb. But, like, his words are right on the edge of being acceptable. And, and his phrases and, and, the, and the way he's speaking. And it was like, it's one of those things where it just kind of, like, rubs me. And so then I'm wondering, is it just me? And, you know, is this, is, what's, what's, what's wrong? And so those two, those two kind of ideas have been bouncing around in my head. This, this idea of coming to God just as I am, and if I'm coming to God broken, it's good. And this idea of a brother in Christ who seems to have regressed over the years. And so to just get us started, let's turn to Romans 7. So in Romans 7, um, we're not going to start at the beginning uh, of the chapter. Um, this really is a, a contrast of, in chapter 7, the law and the implications of the law and what the law can and cannot accomplish. Um, and in chapter 8, about the transition to what the Spirit can accomplish. Um, and so and we're going to start in, in verse 18 of chapter 7. Um, and the Apostle Paul, as he's writing, says... <clears throat> Excuse me, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that I would not, it is not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, 
But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And let's just stop there for for a moment. Um, For the unbeliever, um, this this passage in chapter 7 probably resonates, like, so well. Um, I know for me, as an unbeliever, this passage resonated uh, when I reflected back on it. I didn't really know it as an unbeliever, but then when I became a Christian and I started reading more and I read this passage, it reminded me of, of myself as, as a young man and, and not knowing Christ. And there was this idea that um, I would go to church, I would know it was right, I would try to do good, I would try to be good, and I had no success in being good. And maybe others can resonate. And in some ways, this also probably resonates for us as believers at times in our lives. That there's, there's times in our lives where um, maybe we're not where we're supposed to be. And so we're, we're pursuing God, but it doesn't seem like we're getting anywhere, right? Um, and we're in this, this pit. And you sense Paul as he's describing the past in his situation. Verse 24, oh, wretched man that I am. You know, he's like, I mean, he's like in anguish. He's almost tearing up over this. Um, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And so there's this state that we find ourselves in where we want to do something good, but we can't, right? We can't. And it did remind me, it reminded me, ironically, of, of a seventh grade Bob Varga who had just started junior high school. And I'm... Not sure how many people can relate to this, but reminded me of starting junior high school, and I was kind of the, the chubby kid, um, not very athletic, not very popular. In fact, those words were not in my vocabulary at the time, popular and athletic. Um, but I had a desire to be athletic, and I had a desire to be popular. And there was the option to start or to try out for the football team. And one great thing about junior high school was in seventh grade, everybody made the football team. And so I joined the football team in seventh grade. I lasted three days (laughs) with the football team. So much for great intentions. I literally, I, I, th- I think it must have felt like boot camp <laughs> I, because I, I still remember in my mind trying to do push-ups. <laughs> right? And there's rows of us doing push-ups. And it's almost like the, 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 the movies where you see um, boot camp and all these recruits doing push-ups, right? I was, there was rows of us doing push-ups. And I was the seventh grade Bob Varga who I couldn't do a push-up for my life. Um, and I was really quickly realizing that I was not um, intended to play football in seventh grade. And so these aspirations of being popular, of eventually wearing the the varsity jacket in junior high school and being one of the cool kids came to an end very quickly for me. You know, they say that, um, research says that about 6% of people who target improving themselves are actually able to accomplish it. And that image of me proves that point um, in seventh grade. And, and so we, we recognize, even by that statistic, 
um, and we all kind of know it, that we need Jesus because we cannot improve ourselves to the point of salvation. And now there's a, there's a big theological um, perspective that we could tackle in that topic and why that's the case. And we're not going to go down that road this morning. Um, and if you, if you want to talk about it with me, I'm absolutely comfortable talking about it afterwards as to the theology of that, of that point. Um, because we cannot come to Jesus acceptable for salvation, right? We cannot come um, at a point where we are good enough. Um, we have to come broken to Jesus. In fact, if we consider some key passages in Scripture, um, Romans 5, 8, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? So God knew that we could not be good enough. And so Romans 5.8 says that while we were yet sinners, while we weren't good enough, Jesus died for us because we couldn't be good enough. There was no point in him waiting for us to be good enough because we could never get there. And so while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 3.24 says being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So there is this, this very strong scriptural backup that says that, that we are in no position to claim salvation on our own merit. We, are, have, we will never be able to do it. And so we have to come just as we are to be saved, right? He dies for us while we, we are yet sinners. We are justified freely by his grace. Um, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul again writes, and he says, um, if I get there, uh, in verse 19, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto him, unto them. Um, so basically implying that God, while we were yet in our sinful state, drew us to him through Jesus Christ. That while we are yet in our sinful state, we are drawn to God by Jesus Christ. And he doesn't hold our sins against us because of Jesus. So, I was faced, as I thought about the stories that I shared at the very beginning, with this interesting dilemma. And this is what I've been pondering, and this is what, what we're talking about this morning. So, on, on one hand, if, we, if you reflect back on everything I've said to this point, and you consider we just kind of hold that thought for a second. And let's, let's start with this new thought for just a second. Um, and then we're going to merge them. That there is a need, and a very important need, to be real, to be transparent, to be honest with our state regarding where we are at. That there is no time in this day and age, in, this, in the society that we live in, in, in everything that's happening, for us to just pretend that everything is great and to kind of pretend a certain type of Christianity, um, a superficial form of Christianity. Let's come to church, we dress the part, we look the part, we speak the part, but our lives are a mess behind the scenes, but we don't tell anybody. We cannot do that, right? The, the world needs real Christians. 
The world needs a true Christianity. We have to be honest. We have to be real. We have to be transparent. And if we are honest and real and transparent, that means we share our struggles. But within that, but within that, is it okay? Is it okay for me as a believer to just say, God, my state is my state. I'm being real with you. I'm being transparent. I'm not in a good place. But I'm okay with that because your grace covers my sin. Is it okay for me as a believer to say, church, my brothers and sisters, my family, I'm not in a good place. I'm far from God. And I'm just being real with you. But I know that based on Romans 3.24, based on 2 Corinthians 5.18 and 19, based on other passages, but I know that God's grace is sufficient and it covers my sin and it covers my inadequacy and so the state that I am in is okay, even though I am far from you even though I'm not close to God, even though I'm not in his word, even though I'm in a bad place, it's okay. Is that okay? What do you think? That it doesn't matter my state, it doesn't matter where I am, that even if I'm a lost cause, I'm not a lost cause because I'm not beyond his love. And because his grace doesn't depend on my state, I can come to him as I am, knowing that his grace covers my sin. And so there's that dilemma because I'll tell you that every one of the statements that I just made is accurate. His grace does not depend on our state. I can come to him as I am, and his grace can cover my sin. Every one of those statements is accurate. But as a believer, is it okay for me to, for me to be in that state and be comfortable with it? So, Hopefully, you're all coming or at the same conclusion, have already reached the same conclusion, or have already are way ahead of me and are saying, no, it's not okay. And hopefully all of you are already thinking about Romans 6.1 and that your minds have already gone there where the Apostle Paul also says, Shall I continue to sin that grace may abound? And he says, absolutely not. 
And so I would propose to you, and this is, this is maybe why I got emotional when I was thinking about, about that brother in Christ whose language seems to have regressed. And, and maybe, you know, he made me reflect on my own life, and, and maybe in my own life, maybe it's not language that's regressing, but are there other things that are regressing in my own life? And maybe it's worth you all considering your own lives, and maybe it's not language. Maybe it's your thought life, right? Maybe it's other areas of life where we, we regress. But I would propose that we can fall into a trap in life where we subconsciously just lean on God's grace and live as we live. And I would tell you that that is not what Romans says is acceptable or is appropriate. So why, why, if, if, if Bob, if, if, I'm, if you're saying, if talking about myself in the third person here for a second, if you're saying that, um, that this isn't appropriate, then tell me what I'm supposed to do in a sense, right? And that's the part that I've been kind of triggering in my own life, in my own life, and trying to examine. So why should I pursue holiness? What am I supposed to do? If the state isn't right, then why isn't it right? Like, what are we called to? So I would say that we are called to be exemplary. That that is what we are called to. That we are called to every day seek to raise the bar in our own lives. The bigger challenge is the how. Because it's easy to say that's what we are called to do. But for many of us, we understand that. But yet it seems like we fall back to a Romans 7 situation where I I try and I fail. And I try and I fail. And I know what I'm supposed to do and I can't get there. So how? And maybe just for a split second, before we get into the the how, um, we're not going to... We're not going to dive into it today, but just as an example of why we are called to be exemplary, I want to read just one verse um, in, in Job. And I actually, ironically, shared this back in Northport a, a while back um, in January or whenever when we were there. Um, but I want you to listen to what the Lord tells Satan. He says in Job 1, verse 8, and the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? That there is none like him 
in the earth a perfect and an upright man. Now, we won't go into everything else that happens, but I can tell you that the sense that you get from that one verse is of a proud dad. Don't you? Don't you picture God, the proud father, saying, have you seen my son Job? Look how good he is. He's a perfect and an upright man. He is just and upright. He is exemplary. And so we are called to be exemplary. There is a ton of verses that I can give you about our call to be exemplary, to to elevate. And so, um, just as a quick side note, right, because this idea of raising the bar. um, Anybody hear of the Fosbury flop? I see one nod, right? Couple. Um, on October 20th, 1968, Dick, Dick Foxbury, um, an Oregonian, set a new Olympic record on the high jump in, in the Olympics in Mexico City. Um, he had tried doing the high jump in high school and was awful at doing the high jump. Back then, they were doing like scissor kicks where you run up and you kick one leg up and as you jump over, you bring the other leg over. Um, And he wasn't very good at it, but they had just recently started putting foam padding on the other side of the high jump. He realized that if he just changed his thinking, about the way you had to jump, that maybe it could get a little better. And so he decided to run straight at that bar rather than sideways and parallel and try to do a scissor kick over the top. And so he ran straight at it in a curve. And at the very last second, he would plant his right foot, he would jump over and he would twist around on his back head first. Nobody had ever done it before that way. He set an Olympic record. The previous world record holder called it an aberration. Um, I guess photos of his method from high school had already been circulating in the early 60s, but nobody took it seriously. So he jumped, um, what is it? Uh, set two foot, two meters, two, two point, 2.2 meters, 2.29 meters or something like that, right? Um, Seven foot four inches. Okay, so he jumped. He jumped pretty high. Um, the The world record is a little bit higher, not significantly higher than what he jumped back then in 1968. Um, it's a little bit higher. They use the same method these days, and now nobody uses the, any other method. And the point being, the point being in this story is that. You can't just do things the way you did them. That Jesus calls us, and when he calls us, and when we realize 
what he has given and done for us, that it requires a transformation. It creates a transformation rather than requires a transformation. Pardon my English. And so when we, re- when we recognize God's mercy, when we understand the hope that we have in him, that creates a change. So the Apostle Paul, um, in 1 Timothy 1.5, or sorry, 1.15, listen to this. It's really a powerful statement that the Apostle Paul is making. 1 Timothy 1. And he says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation of acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, right? Absolutely. Of whom I am chief. And he says that, he explains that earlier in this passage. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. How be it? However, for this cause I obtain mercy. Right? I was given mercy, but God has a purpose for me with that mercy. That in me first, Christ Jesus might show forth all long-suffering for a pattern to them which should have to believe on him to life everlasting. What is the reason for the mercy? That in my life, Christ Jesus might be revealed to this world. That in my life, they might understand Jesus. That in my life, Jesus becomes visible. That in my life, the life that Jesus lived is revealed every day. That's what my life is supposed to show, he says. That's why I got mercy. And when we read um, Romans 12, verse 1, where it talks about transformation, and the Apostle Paul is talking to his brothers and sisters and to the church, and he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. He's not just making a grand statement. He's actually saying that I'm begging you because God is merciful. right? I am begging you to listen. And why are you listening? Because God is merciful. And if you recognize that mercy, if you recognize God's mercy, and you recognize God's love, and you recognize what you've been given, if you truly recognize what God has given you, you can't help But do what he asks. And so fundamentally, as I start to regress in my life, it's a sign that the mercy of God is not hitting home the way that it used to. That I am starting to take God's mercy for granted. If I regress, if my language is is changing as an outward sign of what's happening in my life and in my heart, if my heart is cold and and I'm no longer looking and seeing people who are hurting, if I'm too busy to help, 
if I'm too good to get back in the mud with the person that's in the mud to draw them out? That's a sign. That's a warning bell in my life that I am starting to take God's mercy for granted. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The Apostle Paul tells believers that when you recognize God's mercy, if you recognize how much you've been given, that if you recognize that, I'm begging you that you would present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable for the king's use. And then he says, that's your reasonable service. Because basically he says, Isn't, doesn't that make sense? That's what would be expected. If you recognize the mercy that you've been given, if you recognize that you were the chief of sinners, just like I was, if you recognize that you don't deserve Mercy, that you don't deserve salvation. If we recognize that he died for us while we were yet in our sinful state and that his grace covers our sin and that that it is only by the shed blood of Jesus that I am saved and that I can have the hope of salvation and I can have the hope of being in God's presence and that it's only by the shed blood of Jesus that I I can have that confidence, then don't I realize how much mercy I've been given? And if I realize how much mercy I've been given, then I need to pursue being a living sacrifice every day of my life. Every day of my life. I can't rest on my laurels. I can't sit back and say I'm good. I can't sit back and say God's grace covers my sin. I can just live my life. And who cares what my language is like? No, God forbid. I cannot do that because God's mercy is too great. That sacrifice was too big. And even though I come broken just as I am, I cannot stay in that state if I recognize God's mercy. And that is the entire call of the New Testament. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh. In Ephesians 5, 3, but fornication in uncleanness or covetousness, let it not once be named among you, as becometh saints. If you're a saint, those words should never be in, uttered in your presence as, as a behavior that's acceptable, the Apostle Paul says. In 1 Peter 1, 15, 16, but as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. In 1 Timothy 6, 11, but thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness. And that word follow, if you look at it in the Greek, the right definition is to pursue, not just to follow, but to pursue. He says, but thou, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and patience and meekness. And Hebrews 12 just adds on to it, and it says follow, a.k.a. pursue peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see God.
when we try to help ourselves, when we try to help ourselves, we will fail. Even in the world, 94% of the time, we will fail, statistically. Even in times of desperation where we know our life is on the line, we will fail. Alcoholics Anonymous, 5% success rate. They would say 30%, but they only count the people that finish. 70 to 80% of people who join Alcoholics Anonymous because they realize they have a problem that needs a fix, drop out before they even get to the finish line. And so mathematically, you're about 6% success rate. Let's recognize where our salvation comes from. Right? Let's recognize where our salvation comes from. And then set your mind. Maybe I should say our mind. Let's set our mind. Let's set our focus. Let's set our pursuit on the things the Holy Spirit wants. In, in Romans 8, right when we, we finished with the desperation of, oh, wretched man that I am, in Romans 8, chapter 1, I mean, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, the Apostle Paul continues and says, um, I should probably just read it because I'm going to butcher it. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. What does it mean to walk after the Spirit? It means to pursue. It means to pursue the things the Spirit wants. And so as an unbeliever, if you're in a state where you're seeking the Lord and it just seems like it's a struggle to find him or to move forward in your life, pursue the things that God wants. If you recognize that you've been given mercy, pursue God. Seek him and you shall find him. The Bible says that. But to seek means to pursue. So to pursue with your mind, pursue with your focus, pursue with everything you've got, God, and you shall find him. For the believer, if you feel that you're regressing, and maybe it's not your language, but for the believer, if we feel like we're moving backwards, set our mind, set our mind on the Lord Jesus Christ and focus on the things that the Holy Spirit is directing you to do. Apostle Paul said that I was granted mercy so that the world could see Jesus in my life. We have been granted mercy so that the world can see Jesus Christ in our lives.